and a Father's Day greeting to all of you. And it's good to see our friends, the Mercs, here. We're delighted you've come to worship with us this morning. In honor of Father's Day, I thought I would tell you a story about Paul when he was a little child. This is as true as all the stories he's told about me. Just want you to know that. When he was a little boy, he was acting up in church. Now, it's hard to believe that Paul was being disobedient in church. And so as he was, as they were, as a family heading home, they decided on the punishment. It would be that Paul had to sit by himself at the noon dinner. And so they got the table all prepared for the family, and then they had a little table where they prepared a meal for Paul, where he was to sit by himself. And his father bowed to give thanks for the food. And uh, as he was about to finish, Paul interrupted, and he said, And Lord, we thank you for preparing a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Do you ever feel that way, that as a parent you've become an enemy? There are seasons of life where so it seems to be. There is no responsibility that is more awesome to a parent than that of disciplining the child. When we train our children, what we're really doing, you know, is training them how to train their children. That's a scary thought. Because, you see, we set in motion good or ill for coming generations. And that's what our text today in Jeremiah 32 touches on. I invite you to open your Bible to this Old Testament prophet, where we continue looking at the prayer that Jeremiah offered to God, which reveals the mightiness of God. <clears throat> I'm going to pick up the theme at the very beginning of the prayer in verse 17, Jeremiah 32, where it says, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee, who showest loving kindness to thousands. That's what we looked at last week in seeing that God is mighty in his grace. But Jeremiah goes on to say, But repayest the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them, O great and mighty God. Like us, Jeremiah lived in turbulent times. The fabric of the nation of Judah was coming apart, it was on the brink of destruction because the people had disobeyed the voice of the Lord. They had followed false idols and gods. The, the impending doom had to be no surprise to them. They as a nation had been amply warned by God. It is good for us to remember that just as families are disciplined, so are nations. God disciplines and judges the nations of the world. Let me give you three biblical examples of this idea, examples that could number probably into the hundreds from the Bible. The first example of God disciplining the nations is found in the book of Jeremiah. 
For near the end of the book, in chapters 46 through 51, we find recorded the words of Jeremiah to the surrounding nations of Judah. He speaks to Egypt. He speaks to Edom, Ammon and Moab, the Philistines and Syria. And to each of these nations, Jeremiah, the prophet of God, pronounces doom and judgment upon them because of their ungodliness and because of their treatment of his people. And so we see one example within the book of Jeremiah. There is another example that is found in the book of Daniel. Daniel was a contemporary of Jeremiah. <clears throat> he had been carried off to Babylon in the first invasion of the Babylonians. But he lived in the same time period as Jeremiah. They may have known each other. And in Babylon, Daniel received a tremendous insight from God. You may recall the story in Daniel chapter 2. How that Nebuchadnezzar had a nightmare, a dream, and he was so terrified by it that he wanted his wise men, his astrologers, to give him the interpretation. But to test them. He said, I also want you to tell me what the dream was. And of course, none of them could do it, except Daniel. God gave to Daniel the insight to know what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed and what it meant. And so he told him. Nebuchadnezzar had a, a dream of a large image, and it was made of various kinds of, of metal. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, and his kingdom of Babylon was represented in the gold head. The great and awesome empire, Babylon. And then moving down the statue, you come to the, the next portion of the statue, which represented the Medes and the Persians that would arise after Babylon. They would destroy Babylon. And they would become the great power in that part of the world. And following the Medes and the Persians would come another empire that we know now to have been the, the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great. But that wasn't the final move. There was yet another empire to come upon the world, and that was the Roman Empire. And you know, if you are aware of that image, that its feet were made out of, of uh, iron and clay, indicating that it was part of the Roman Empire, and yet it was different. And our understanding of that is that the feet of that image have never yet been fulfilled, that there is yet coming upon the world an empire that will be a form of the ancient Roman Empire, and in fact will be the kingdom of the Antichrist uh, in the last days of this age. And so Daniel is given this information to understand how the nations of the world would arise over a period of hundreds of years in world history. And then Daniel prays, and that's what I want you to notice in Daniel chapter 2, is what he says to the Lord. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him, and it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. And he goes on to praise God for his wisdom and power. 
Daniel says it is God who causes nations to rise and it is God who puts them down when their purpose has been accomplished. God disciplines nations. He does it in a variety of ways. He does it through wars and defeat in wars. He does it through disease and famine. He does it through economic ruin. He does it through moral collapse from within the empire as happened with Rome. <clears throat> and I'm sure there were people who lived in various times during those empires I've mentioned who felt that nothing could ever destroy Babylon. It was too great. Its armies too awesome. Nothing could ever destroy Babylon. But God did by raising up the Medes and the Persians and doing it in the most amazing way, the stories in Daniel. And the Persian Empire in all of its glory, who could possibly destroy it? God did when its time was done. God brought it into judgment. And you know, there are people who live in the United States of America who say, who could possibly ever imagine America not being the superpower of the world. We who are believers in the God of the Bible had better be able to imagine that, friend. Because just as God was able to discipline those nations, he's able to discipline America, and America is overdue. God disciplines the nations of the world. There's another example I want to point out in the prophet Joel. He foresees a day at the end of time when God is going to gather the nations of the world into what he terms the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And there God will judge the nations. So understand this. That just as we have discipline in families, so there is discipline among the nations of the world and God is the one who disciplines. And I tell you, if Boris Yeltsin is re-elected in Russia today, as seems to be the case, the way the polls are indicating, it is the goodness of God. It is the purpose of God. Because it could have been otherwise very, very easily. And when it comes to our own elections in this country this fall, God may well allow the electorate of this nation to choose what it wants and allow us to bring judgment on ourselves. And that doesn't necessarily mean the same administration being in power the next four years. There are, there are no magic formulas for either political party or for ones that uh, are trying to arise. Unless this nation turns back to God, it's under the judgment of God. And it doesn't make any difference who's elected this law in that regard. God will deal with this nation. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't make any difference, therefore be apathetic. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is God is the one who disciplines. And what I want you to see this morning in this message 
is that this God who is mighty in his loving kindness to thousands of generations is a God who is also mighty in his discipline. Mighty in his discipline. During this summer, we want to get to know God better and understand more about God. Jeremiah said, if anyone is going to glory or is going to boast, let him boast in this, that he understands and knows God. That God is the one who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness in the earth. And so our goal this summer is to know what God is really like, to understand him from the Bible. And this morning we're going to see that God, who is mighty in grace, is mighty in justice. He is mighty in discipline. And along the way, I hope that we'll pick up some principles that will help us, who are earthly parents, earthly fathers on this Father's Day, in our discipline of our families. So stick with me. The first thing I want you to notice this morning is that God disciplines his people for disobedience. Now that seems very obvious, doesn't it? But don't overlook it as being too simple. Because we think today, because this is the, the uh, mindset of our culture, that somehow God either doesn't exist or God is overlooking the evil of our culture. That somehow God's not involved in it because it's gone on from generation to generation and nothing's happened. We need to understand from the very beginning the simple point that God disciplines his people for disobedience. Notice here in Jeremiah 32 what is said uh, in verse 21. As Jeremiah continues to pray. He says, Lord, you brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders and a strong hand and an outstretched arm and great terrors. And you gave them this land which you swore to their forefathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and took possession of it. And so he recounts the Pentateuch up through the book of Joshua, where God gave the people the land. But, he says, they did not obey thy voice or walk in thy law. So now Jeremiah is bringing us up to date. He says, God, you did all of these things, and yet your people did not obey. And so he says, verse 24, Behold, the siege mounds have reached the city to take it. Remember, the city of Jerusalem is under siege. The Babylonian armies have surrounded it. They are building mounds of dirt toward the city walls which they will ultimately destroy. And they will enter the city and carry off its people captive. And Jeremiah says, it's because they did not obey thy voice or walk in thy law. God disciplines his people for disobedience. Now you say, well... <clears throat> So Babylon carried them off, and they were in captivity for 70 years. But why did God say 70 years? Well, it's again because of disobedience. When they entered the land, God had given them a law called the sabbatical rest law, 
Every seven years, the land was to lie fallow. And for 490 years, the people were in the land up to this point. They had never obeyed that law from God to let the land be at rest every seven years. So if you know your math, you take seven into 490 and you come up with 70. And so God is now catching up and is going to allow the land to be idle for 70 years while his people are in captivity in Babylon. That's the reason it's 70 years. Now when God disciplines, it's not because he hates Israel. In fact, God loves his people desperately. God's discipline does not arise out of hatred, but out of love. In Proverbs, again in Hebrews 12, it says, For whom the Lord loves, he what? He chastens. He disciplines. Do we parents discipline our children because we hate them? They think so sometimes. We're told so sometimes. But we take the time, we exert the energy to discipline them because we love them. And we know that if they continue doing the things they're doing, they're going to end up in trouble. They're going to hurt themselves. They're going to bring their lives into ruin. And so out of love for them, we discipline. And why does God discipline Israel? Because he loves Israel. He doesn't want them as a people to be under the bondage of idols. He doesn't want to see them destroy themselves in serving false gods. He loves them so much that he wants them to love him so that he can bless them. And so he disciplines them. God disciplines his people for disobedience and he does it out of love. The second thing I want you to notice is that God's discipline is preceded by patient warning. God had established the rules, so to speak, very early on. God says, here's what I expect, and if you obey, I will bless you, and if you disobey, I will discipline you. And in chapter 32 again, and in verse 33, Jeremiah acknowledges that God had warned them. He says, they have turned their back to me. This is God now speaking through Jeremiah. They have turned their back to me, not their face. In other words, just as you parents say, you look at me when I'm talking to you. God is saying, they did not look at me. They turned their back to me in rebellion. Though I taught them, teaching them again and again, they would not listen and receive instruction. And so what we have here is a nation that had been warned over and over and over and over again that discipline was coming. And it would not listen to God. We see examples of this warning in Jeremiah 26, if you want to turn back there just real quickly. In Jeremiah 26, we find the, the general time period when this prophecy came to Jeremiah. It's the reign of Jehoiakim. 
And here's what the Lord said to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, verse 2, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I have commanded you to speak to them, do not omit a word. Perhaps they will listen, and everyone will turn from his evil way that I may repent of the calamity which I am planning to do to them because of the evil of their deeds. So here's an example of God's warning. Jeremiah, go down to the temple in the courtyard and speak to the people and tell them. Perhaps they will turn from their wickedness and then I can turn from what I'm intending to do to them. Verse 5, he tells Israel, You have not listened to the words of my servants, the prophets, who I have been sending to you again and again. You have not listened. Then later in the chapter, we have a recounting of some words from Micah, the prophet, who lived a hundred years before this, in the days of Hezekiah, the king. And Micah warned the nation a hundred years before this that God was going to judge the nation and the city of Jerusalem. And the chapter closes with another warning from God through a man named Uriah. Uriah's prophecy was strong, and he fled for his life to Egypt. Jehoiakim was so upset by what he said, he sent people to Egypt to bring the, the prophet back, and he killed him when he got him back in Jerusalem. And so in this one chapter, we have three examples of many where God warned over and over of coming discipline. But God's discipline is preceded by patient warning. And we see that in our text, going back to, to uh, chapter 32. Notice that it says, God, you repay the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. Now, the casual reader would look at this and say, well, that's unfair. Why did God punish the children for what the fathers did? Now, Jeremiah is not saying these words in a vacuum. He has some reason for saying them. He is pulling this thought out of the covenant that God made with Israel. And we want to go back into that covenant and just snip out what Jeremiah is referring to. So to do that, turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Here we have the Ten Commandments given by God on Mount Sinai. And in verse 4, God says, You shall not make for yourself any idol. Verse 5, You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now look at these words. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, of generations to those who love me. What does it mean to hate the Lord? It's the opposite of loving. What does it mean to love the Lord, to keep his commandments? So to hate the Lord is to rebel against his commandments. And in the context here, it means not only to rebel against God, but to go into idolatry, <clears throat> to begin worshiping false gods. And God says, those who choose to do this, 
will be disciplined. And I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, even down to the great and great, great grandchildren point. Now, as we look at this text, there are some things we need to note. <clears throat> First of all, notice the patience of God. Here's a generation that hates the Lord. However God deals with that generation is not the subject here. The point is that God allows this attitude to continue. He is patient with generations. When there is a father who hates the Lord, most likely his sons will hate the Lord. And when they become fathers, their sons will hate the Lord. And through the succeeding generations, God is patient. God warns. God waits. God is long-suffering. God does not delight in discipline. God patiently bears with sinners. That's one thing to note. When it says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children, it means that there is a time, however, when God's patience is done. There is a point reached when, as it were, the cup of sin is filled up and it overflows. We have an example of this in Genesis chapter 15 where God makes a covenant with Abraham. You may remember that scene where Abraham and God are alone and God tells Abraham to prepare sacrifices and he divides them in half and lays them out and then there's a terrible darkness that comes upon the scene and God is present <clears throat> and then God himself walks through these sacrifices by a smoking lamp that becomes visible. And he does this so that he can signify that this covenant he is making with Abraham depends not upon the two of them together, for if that were the case, Abraham would have walked with him. But God says this covenant depends only on me, Abraham. And then he speaks to Abraham and he says, your descendants will come back. He says, first they're going to go down to Egypt. They're going to be enslaved for 400 years. And then they're going to come back and I will give them this land. And then he says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. See what God is saying there? The Amorites were the people who lived in that part of Palestine. And God is saying they are wicked. They serve idols. They do detestable things. But Abraham, I am patient with them. And I'm going to allow them to live here for four more generations. And during this time, I will be patient with them. But when my time comes, I will judge them. And Abraham, when that happens, I will have brought your people out of the land of Egypt here. And I will give them the land that the Amorites now possess and will possess for four more generations. 
God is patient. And we must not think that God's patience with the United States of America means that he is overlooking our sins. We must not deceive ourselves into thinking that somehow because some horrible thing hasn't happened to America, we haven't had some great collapse yet, that God has neglected, that God has forgotten judgment. That is not the case. God is patient. And over and over and over again, he has warned this nation. And someday, and only God knows when, he will bring the discipline that is needed and deserved. And it will be not only the discipline that will fall on that generation living at that time, but the accumulated discipline of, of previous generations. I like the comments of Kylan Delich, who wrote for another generation, but who are very insightful into the Hebrew language. Listen to what they say regarding the text in Exodus. The human race is a living organism in which not only sin and wickedness are transmitted, but evil as the curse of sin and the punishment of wickedness. As children receive their nature from their parents, so they also have to bear and atone for their father's guilt. There reigns in the world a righteous and gracious God who not only restrains the course of his judgments as soon as the sinner is brought to reflection by punishment and hearkens to the voice of God, but who also forgives sin and iniquity of those who love him, keeping mercy to the thousandth generation. They go on to say the words here neither affirm that sinning fathers remain unpunished, nor that the sins of the fathers are punished in the children and grandchildren without any fault of their own. They simply say nothing about whether and how the fathers themselves are punished. And in order to show the dreadful severity of the penal righteousness of God, these words give prominence to the fact that punishment is not omitted that even when in the long-suffering of God it is deferred, it is not therefore neglected. Listen to those words carefully, my friends. For those are words that apply not only to ancient Israel, but to every civilization that has ultimately come under the judgment of God. In the long-suffering of God, that judgment may be deferred. And during that time, God pleads, God warns. But because God defers, doesn't mean that he neglects. And judgment will come. In the 120 years preceding the flood, God pled with the world. Through the preaching of of Noah to no avail. God's long suffering waited, waited for the human race to respond, and it would not. And judgment came. God's discipline is always preceded by patient warning. 
And the final thing to note is this, that God's discipline is not intended to be destructive, but instructive. You see, God in his discipline of his people wants us to learn to love him and to learn wisdom. That is for our own good. God's heart is grieved when he sees us going the wrong way because he knows where that's going to lead us. He knows the pain. He knows the sorrow. He knows the loss. He knows the, the destruction that awaits at the end of that path we're taking. And so in his love, he brings discipline against us so that he might somehow turn us from our way to walk on the right path. A missionary was talking to me between service, and he said, my people, the Chamula in Mexico, and because of that you know it was Ken, some of you, he said they have a saying that says, God doesn't know how to hurt us. As they have learned the word from their culture, that's how they said, God does not know how to hurt us. What that means is that God may discipline us, but it is not to our harm. It is not to our destruction. It is so that we might learn, that we might be instructed in his ways. And then turn and then be blessed by God. That's what he wants. And so God's discipline is not destructive, it's instructive. Now the discipline may mean pain, it may mean loss, but the point is that God, through that, is teaching us to obey Him. Obviously there is some clear application here to ourselves, and not just to ancient Israel. When we disobey God, God will patiently warn us. And if we will not listen to God, He will discipline us because He loves us too much not to discipline us. He loves us too much not to teach us what to do so that we can experience the best of His blessings. morning there are some of us that need to respond to God's discipline in our lives by turning around. But before we go, I want to, to point out to you four principles that arise to me out of what we've talked about this morning that help me as a father in my discipline. I hope that these principles may give you who are parents some guidance in disciplining your children. We can do no better than to follow the example of our Heavenly Father in disciplining those that are in our care. Principle number one, to discipline your child is to prove that you love him. You will hear otherwise from your child. But to discipline your child is to only prove that you love him. Someone has said, allow a pig and a boy to have everything they want and you'll end up with a good pig and a bad boy. The reason that we discipline our children is because we love them so much we know that, that if they continue doing this, it's going to lead them into trouble. 
And so we interfere, we intervene, and out of love, we discipline. Number two, let your expectations be clearly stated in advance and repeat warnings of discipline as appropriate. Children shouldn't be surprised when they're disciplined. They should know that it's coming because of what's happened, what they've heard before. Rearing children is like drafting blueprints. You have to know where to draw the lines. Children need lines. Draw them clearly and warn them about the lines. Let them know. And when they are crossed, let the discipline come. Number three, Temper your discipline with mercy. Always keeping the goal of training in view. Never allow your discipline to go over the edge into destruction. For you are destroying your child. God intends for us to, to break the will, the stubbornness of the child, but not to destroy the spirit of the child. So temper your discipline with mercy, keeping training before you. you. You don't have to prove that you're bigger. You don't have to prove that you're the boss. All you have to do is prepare that child to live wisely in discipline. And finally, remember that your discipline must begin, must begin with your own example. Your children are not only heirs of your possessions, your children are heirs also of your values and your character. And they will take those into life. And so remember that your discipline begins with your own life. The character of your child tomorrow is shaped by what he learns from you today. Now we expect our children to obey us and to learn from our discipline. Should God have any less of an expectation? And so how are you responding to God's loving discipline, his instruction in your life? There are many tales told about ships that for one reason or another lose their way in the channel and end up on the rocks, broken, ruined. Sometimes it's because the captain was asleep. Sometimes it's because the compass was wrong or because of a malfunction. Inevitably, it's because the rudder was in the wrong direction. Someone has said, he who will not answer to the rudder must answer to the rocks. The rudder of some of you here today is in the wrong position, and it's leading you toward doom. And God is putting pressure in your life. He is trying to get that rudder to change and to turn you away from the rock. Will you today turn? Will you yield to the pressure God is bringing into your life? Will you turn from the rocks and let a loving Father embrace you and bless you and fill your life with the good things that now He can't give you? Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we are many here, fathers and parents. We are all children. And most of us here are children of yours. 
And we have much to learn about you being mighty not only in grace but in discipline. Forgive us when we have thought that because you've disciplined us, you hated us. Help us to see afresh this morning how deep your love is. Oh, that only we could know the love of Christ. If we could only know it fully. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for demonstrating your love at the cross where you took the punishment of all of our sin on yourself and died for us. From that demonstration, help us to see and to understand and to feel today the depth of your love. Wherein we are resisting your hand in our lives. We're refusing to listen, though again and again you've spoken. I pray that there will be a significant decision that we will make to yield. God, help that mother, that father, that young person, that grandparent, to yield, to repent, to come home, and today know the blessing of a father who loves them so desperately. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and our heads bowed and eyes closed. We're going to sing our commitment and our prayer. In my life, Lord, be glorified. And as we sing it, if you have particular needs and you need to come today because your heart is heavy and you're broken, your burden. You want a significant change. You want someone to pray with you. I invite you to slip out and come here to the front as we sing this chorus. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Just come right now as we sing our prayer of commitment to the Lord. In my life, Lord, be speaking to your heart. Pray for every parent 
God, that you will give us that wisdom and that grace and that spirit that we need, that self-control that will enable us to discipline our children as you faithfully discipline us. We commit ourselves to you and we pray that indeed you will be glorified. God, we pray in closing too for our nation, that our country, that the people of this nation may repent of its wickedness and turn to you and be spared the judgment that is coming. In Jesus' name, amen. We're dismissed.